I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've been keeping well. I myself finally caught COVID-19 last week, which wasn't much fun, but delighted to report that thanks to my three vaccinations, my symptoms were pretty mild. So please get boosted if you can. Today, we've got something a little different for you. We've partnered with the International Rescue Committee, IRC for short, to explore a new report they have produced on the humanitarian crises that require global attention in 2022. The IRC's Emergency Watch List is an annual publication which highlights the parts of the world facing the most severe catastrophes, whether through conflict, natural disaster, economic collapse, or a host of other factors. Among the countries that feature in the 2022 report are Sudan, Syria, Somalia, Myanmar, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Nigeria, Yemen, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan. The report makes for some pretty sobering reading, and through it you get a sense of the consistent failures of governments and the international community in upholding the security and prosperity of civilians in these countries. Joining me to discuss the watch list and its findings are George Reddings, lead author of the report, and Vicky Aikens, the IRC's country director for Afghanistan. You're going to hear first from George, who explains the key theme of system failure, which characterizes the crises that he's analysed. And then Vicky provides us with a report from Kabul about the state of the crisis in Afghanistan since the withdrawal of NATO forces in 2021 and the collapse of the then government. I won't say I hope you enjoy listening like I normally do, but thank you very much for engaging with us on this episode. Okay, so now I'm joined by George Reddings, the Global Crisis Analysis Lead at the International Rescue Committee and lead author of the IRC's Emergency Watch List for 2022, subtitled, concerningly, System Failure. George, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Could you maybe begin just by giving us a sense of what the watch list is for? What are you trying to do with this report? So the IRC has produced an emergency watch list, I think, for somewhere around 13 years now. The first ones are lost in the annals of time, but uh, it's ultimately it's a list of 20 countries. It's the countries that we are most concerned about for the year ahead, and we are concerned that they're going to see an increase in humanitarian need or a new humanitarian emergency. The reason we put this list together is that it supports our planning and preparedness originally, and we want to know which of these countries are so that we can focus our monitoring efforts, so that we can focus our preparedness efforts in the right place. For the last few years, we've been releasing it externally as well because we think it's important to raise awareness and, and raise the concerns that we have about what is happening. Absolutely, and it, it's a troubling read, but it is very fascinating. And I just wondered what goes into the kind of selection process for developing this list? What sort of metrics are you taking account of to decide whether a country should be on the watch list? 
We use a mixed approach of quantitative and qualitative analysis. I won't bore you with all the details, but they're described in the report. There's a full um, methodology annex if you want to, to look into it in detail. But the key point is that we're looking at two main components of risk. The first is the likelihood of some kind of shock occurring, whether that's a human-driven shock or a natural-driven shock. We then also look at the likely impact of any shock if and when it occurs. And we look at that through the existing pressures on the population and the country's response capacity. We look at a wide range of sources that speak to those components of risk from the humanitarian space, from think tanks, from commercial suppliers, that kind of thing. And that enables us to do a mixed approach. We start looking at 190 countries and territories around the world and we ultimately zoom in on the final list. One source that I would really highlight as very unique in providing a particularly important perspective for us in that process. We have 30,000 staff and volunteers around the world in uh, over 40 countries, and they provide us with insights and perspectives on what is going on that can really help ground check and sense check what we are seeing in our analysis, and that's a key component of the analysis that goes into WatchList as well. Absolutely. And, and can you give us a sense of some of the risks that you find cropping up sort of most commonly? Last year, we focused our watch list on the three key risks related to conflict, climate change and COVID-19. And it's probably not a surprise that those three issues come up repeatedly in the countries on, on this year's list as well. Mm. So conflict is a constant across nearly all of the countries in the watch list. And I'm sure we'll speak more about, about why that is and what impact that's having in a second. But we're also seeing climate change having a major impact. We're seeing increasingly frequent uh, droughts and flooding in East Africa and, and other regions. And we're also seeing the impacts of COVID-19. One of the unique aspects of the countries on watch list 2022 is often the health infrastructure is very weak, monitoring, testing capacity is very limited. So it's really hard to say what precise sort of health impacts COVID-19 has been having in those countries. But we know for sure that it's having an economic impact. And we know that it's also disrupting other uh, sort of indirect health impacts. It's disrupting measles vaccination campaigns and that kind of thing as well. So those are probably the three sort of key risks we see uh, across those countries, but manifesting in very different ways in, in different countries. As I mentioned at the start, the sort of subtitle for this report in particular, the 2022 edition, is System Failure. So could you maybe just give us a sense of what your authors meant by system failure? We came up with the term system failure because it was the only way that we could really explain what we are seeing yep. in the watchless countries and in the world as a, as a whole. So if we just step back for a second, in 2022, there are 274 million people in humanitarian need. That is 20% more than last year, which was a record, which was higher than the 40% higher than the year before, which was also a record. You know, these are unprecedented numbers of people in humanitarian need. We've got more people displaced than since records began. That's over 80 million people forcibly displaced, externally or internally. We've got 41 million people on the brink of famine. There were 484 aid workers in the last year that records were available who were attacked, serious attacks. These are truly shocking statistics at a global level. And what you find with the watch list is that 20 countries on our list provide a really unique perspective to understand what's going on. Because if you look at those 20 countries, they've got a population of around 800 million people. So that's about 10% of global population. And yet they account for 89% of humanitarian need. Mm. That's to say 244 million people globally are 
in those countries or from those countries and require humanitarian assistance. 80% of people who are externally displaced, 76% of people who are internally displaced are from these countries. So if we want to understand what is going on in the world as a whole, what's driving those shocking statistics, we need to look at these 20 countries. And it's when we looked at those countries that we realised this is not just some gradual deterioration. This isn't some organic growth in the number of people who are in need. This is four times higher the number of people in need than it was 10 years ago. Mm. Double the number of people who are um, displaced. So, yeah, this is not organic growth. This is not just because the world is getting bigger that more people are suffering. It's gone from less than 1% of people in need to 3.5% of people in need globally. So something's broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where we came to the term system failure. We see system failure as having four main components. The first is state failure. States are not living up to, to their responsibilities to their citizens. In fact, in many cases, they're attacking them. Then we've got diplomatic failure, where the international community should be stepping in to help resolve crises. In fact, very often the external intervention is in the form of adding fuel to the to the flames. Then we've got legal failure. The, the norms of international humanitarian law are being disregarded. And we're seeing that in the record numbers of attacks on humanitarians, the normalisation of humanitarian assistance being disrupted, being blocked and being uh, instrumentalised. Those first three failures... Normally, the humanitarian sector exists to step in and provide support to people when states fail, when the international systems fail. But what we're also seeing is operational failure, and that's for a couple of reasons. We're seeing attacks on humanitarian aid. That's one key part of it. And we're also seeing the amount of aid that is required is rapidly increasing, and the funding is not keeping step. Thank you for laying all of that out. I think... Just to take you back to the numbers that you outlined just at the start there, you said the 20 countries on the on the watch list uh, account for 89% of, of those who are in need in, in these particular sort of crisis situations. Is that particular kind of concentration, is that increasing year on year as well? Or is it usually that the list encompasses the vast majority of the people that you're talking about? And, and if there is this sort of concentration effect, what, why do you think that is happening? When, for the last few years that we produced the watch list, we've looked at the number of people in need and we've seen this real focus in the countries that we're, we're, we're looking at, that those 20 countries. And in particular in the countries at the top of our list, the top 10. Mm-hmm. That's not anything new. But what I think is particularly concerning is that we're seeing this massive growth in need in these countries and in other countries too. And, and I think the reason we're seeing that growth in the number of people in need. And it is mostly focused in a similar set of countries. We haven't made major changes to the watch list this year compared to last year's. And that's been the case for the last several years. We're changing two, three, four countries on the list, not making wholesale changes. And I think this speaks to the core of system failure, which is that something has broken. The international community is not addressing it. The legal system is not addressing it. And it's building in a set of countries that are on the watch list, but it's also spreading and mutating because the drivers of system failure, the causes of system failure, are universal. They're not specific to these countries. And I think that's what's so concerning. A really good example of this is Burkina Faso. If we'd talked about Burkina Faso six or seven years ago, we would not have been thinking about it as a country to put onto the emergency watch list. Over that time, we've seen a massive increase in conflict, massive increase in displacement and humanitarian need. So it's been a fixture on our watch list for the last three years, and there's really no hope of Burkina Faso coming off the list. 
And our concern is that if the international community doesn't step in and doesn't start to address system failure, then it's going to spread, it's going to mutate, and more and more countries are going to be affected. I think one of the things that jumped out at me from the report as well is the sort of range of coming back to the metrics you're using and and the risks that you're dealing with. There's a kind of proliferation as well of different types of conflict, which I think... um, maybe some of our listeners might not think about. Obviously, you, we, we're we more aware in the news cycle of, of the kind of traditional armed conflict, military fighting military, or whether it's a civil war or whether it's between states. It's that kind of conventional warfare, I suppose. But, but something that sort of jumped out at me as I was reading down the list, of course, you've got countries like Honduras, Venezuela, where there, there actually aren't these big hot wars happening but there is still huge amounts of conflict. I wonder if you could speak to that a bit more just to give a bit more flesh on the bone of that. Absolutely. The idea of conflict being out of control is one of the three underlying drivers that we see as as contributing to system failure, along with changes in the sort of international system that result in a proliferation of actors with influence and also uh, so the stagnation and the, the, the failure that bodies like the Security Council to, to make progress on on resolving issues. So that, that idea of conflict is absolutely critical and it's it's core to understanding humanitarian need. At least 80% of humanitarian need, if you look at the research that's been done, is, is driven by conflict. But it's not just traditional state-on-state conflict. We have countries, exactly as you say, where conflict takes the form of armed violence involving criminal groups. Um, so the proliferation of actors involved in conflict is another key, key issue because it doesn't just feed into violence and in the, the normal sense but it also sort of results in greater abuses against civilian populations we're seeing uh, actors with no real requirement no accountability involved in these conflicts whether they're criminal gangs um, in on, on Honduras whether it's private military contractors that we're seeing in Central African Republic or, or Mozambique and all these different types of violence are contributing to a situation where we're now seeing more armed conflicts of various different types going on in the world than at any point since World War II. And the key shift there has been in the rise of a particular type of civil conflict. It's been the rise of internationalised civil conflicts. So wars happening between a government and a non-state actor where at least one other foreign state has intervened on one side or the other. And in many cases, it's multiple states intervening on many different sides in the conflict. And we really focus on that in the watch list because it results in war without law and it results in wars that just aren't ending. These are wars that are more complex to negotiate and into. There are more actors that need to be brought into any peace deal. And so it's no coincidence that in 2020, again, the last year we have the records for, that there were more conflicts than at any point and fewer peace deals. And this is really concerning. If conflict is the key driver of humanitarian need and conflict is growing uh, rapidly, then that is clearly a key factor contributing to system failure. And and ultimately, and what is most important, the human suffering that we're seeing in these countries and the rapid growth in humanitarian need. That divergence between sort of rising number of conflicts and diminishing number of peace deals was really, really stark. I think that's something that really jumped out at me from the report as well. Do you think that's where we come back to the kind of international scale of the system failure that you were describing because a lot of the drivers it seemed to me as I was reading with a lot of it is kind of local or at least within state boundaries but then do you think that failure to develop peace 
deals and to build peace generally is is that where it comes back to the kind of international realm and the failure of our global governance institutions to support those processes the, we are not just talking about sins of omission here these are sins of commission there are countries that are targeting their own populations there are countries that are very cynically in my view and, and, and in our view, using the concept of sovereignty to chip away at the idea of universal rights. Mm. And we're seeing obstruction of efforts to uh, engender any kind of accountability. So I think definitely there, there is blame here. The four components of system failure are interlocking. There's the state failure at the local level, there's the diplomatic failure, the legal failure at the international level, and there's the operational failure. And it's the fact that they all interconnect, they're all, they all interlocking, that makes it so hard to resolve and, and so intractable. It's going to take years of dedicated effort to really unpick this and start to make some progress. And we're not hopelessly naive. We understand that what is necessary is not politically achievable, and what is politically achievable is far below what is necessary to make improvements. So we set out two sets of recommendations in the report. The first is really aimed purely addressing the symptoms. We're talking about where best to direct funding. Um, we're talking here about a new deal for people who are forcibly displaced, that kind of thing. It's addressing the symptoms. It's not getting to the core of, of system failure. And that's important work. I don't want to understate that. And then there's the side of it where we're looking at what is driving system failure and, and how we can start to address that. And we have a set of recommendations there. I think two I want to highlight here. One is... You know, we're seeing this deadlock at the international level. The international system is not addressing crises in the way it's supposed to. So one thing we are doing is we're throwing our weight behind a French proposal that the UN Security Council permanent members should give up their veto in the cases of mass atrocity. So that's one recommendation we're making. We, we, we think that could help us start to make some progress in the worst cases. It's clearly not going to resolve the entirety of system failure, but it will be a step forward from where we are currently. So that's one. The other recommendation I want to highlight is we're calling for an organisation for the protection of humanitarian access. So humanitarian access is the ability of communities affected by crisis to access life-saving humanitarian assistance and also the ability of humanitarian access to reach those, those same communities. And what we're seeing is unparalleled attacks on humanitarian aid, restrictions on humanitarian access, both due to conflict but also due to bureaucratic impediments. And these are things like requiring permission to go to a field site and being denied that or it being held out, um, held back for, for months on end or being prevented from importing the critical supplies. So humanitarian access is being constrained and it's been normalised, it's constrained. This is a violation of international humanitarian law and yet it's something that we seem to be just accepting now. And we're saying that's not, that's not OK and that it is time for action to be taken. But the problem is, so far, the burden for the effort has fallen on actors like the IRC, other humanitarians, the UN, to speak out. And not only are we not the ones with the power to bring about the, the political change that is needed, but also our key responsibility is to the crisis-affected communities that we serve. And I'm sitting here talking to you about a podcast. I am not going to say anything in this conversation that would increase the risk of colleagues in other countries from uh, in 
being det- detained and being arrested. I'm not going to say anything that would risk life-saving humanitarian assistance being disrupted and, and being prevented from going ahead. So there are real constraints on what we can actually say and do in speaking out about those constraints on humanitarian access. So we think it's really important there's an independent body that can collect the evidence, can do investigations, and speak credibly and clearly about what is going on with humanitarian access, because it's such a critical issue, but it is not yet understood and and addressed with the importance that's needed. I take the point, of course, that there are limits to what the aid actors, you know, aid agencies and organisations like the IRC can do on their own when governments are sort of willfully preventing access to humanitarian assistance. I suppose my question is, though, are there things that aid organisations could be doing to improve these situations in the knowledge that this system failure is preventing real change? There's no silver bullet to this, but are there sort of at a local level things particularly on the operational side of system failure, that you think aid organisations should be taking more responsibility for? I think for humanitarian actors, we've been living with the consequences of system failure for some time now. And we've been developing all sorts of coping mechanisms to deal with it. And I have the privilege of working really closely with the IRC's humanitarian access team. And they are working with our country programmes in many different places trying to unpick and address the thorniest access problems, how to reach the communities and ensure that crisis-affected communities in, in the hardest reach places are able to get the aid they, they require. So there are things we're doing. We can, we can do more of them, I'm sure, like focus on humanitarian access, like trying to understand the environments that we're working in and understand how the, the politics is, is affecting the humanitarian crisis and vice versa. I think one of the things that we have not been good enough yet as a sector and that we're trying to address through through the watch list and, and through system failure. We tend to be very bureaucratic. We tend to report out on the numbers of people reached, people not reached, and it becomes very bland and dry and difficult for people outside the sector to even understand what we're saying because we're lost in a sort of forest of jargon. I think we're very much at risk of becoming, and we are at times, like the proverbial frog. We have been sitting in these situations... And it's been getting worse around us. The political atmosphere, locally, internationally, has been getting worse around us. And we talk about it as though it's normal. And I think what we need to do more of is sit back, understand the bigger picture of what's going on, and speak to that, and use the voice we have, use the ability to influence that we have to, to call on those who do have the power to really take action. Because if we continue to speak only in bureaucraties, then it's going to be hard for people to understand the action needs to happen, let alone what they need to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just how do we change public awareness of this in richer countries, in more peaceful countries, the countries that really need to be providing the aid, the countries whose governments should be supporting those norms that are so important in within the international institutions that you're working with? Does that also, is that another dimension, another area where aid agencies and humanitarian actors could be more involved in making a case again to the public, not just to bureaucrats and governments. Absolutely. And there's a reason why we decided that the watch list should no longer just be an internal document, but it's something that we needed to share with interested in, in individuals, with, with governments and, and, and others, because we, we felt it's really important that, that people know and, and understand. I also think that there's a real danger that this has been a really depressing conversation so far, <laughs> And that's because we're talking about 
horrific things about really disturbing trends in, in global affairs. And it's hard not to find that demoralizing. And I think we also need to remember that there are some reasons for optimism and not allow despair and depression to set in and prevent action. Because mm. despair is the, the never going to lead to, to the action that, that we require and that, that the world demands. So I think there are, there are two sort of spaces where I find optimism. And I think we sort of must do more to communicate about. One is just, it may seem intractable. And these crises are shocking. And it may seem difficult to, to make a meaningful impact in that. But the programs that we are running, the, the programs that we're implementing, they are having an impact at the personal level. Even if the global trend, trends are shocking, we can make a difference at the personal level. And that is something that's really important to me in, in my work and seeing the, the, the impact that colleagues are having around the world. And you'll hear more about that from, from Vicky and the work that her team is doing in Afghanistan. So I think that's one, one area for optimism that I think we should be focusing on. The other, and it's sort of a curious way of looking at it, because, yes, there's 274 million people in need globally and 89% of those are in or from watches countries. And these are numbers you cannot imagine. Over 240 million people in need accounted for by these countries. And yet there's a curious optimism to that because it is only 20 countries. If governments like the UK, the US can start to get their policies right for those countries, then we can really make a meaningful dent in the global situation. And so some of the recommendations that we have in the report, again, they speak to that need to get the policies right for these 20 countries, and then we can start to see the impacts at the global level. Quasi-optimisms they may be, but thank you for raising them at least, and thank you generally for the work that you're doing on the watch list, and, and I encourage everybody to read it. We're going to hear next from one of George's colleagues, Vicky Akins, who is the country director for the IRC in Afghanistan. George, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Okay, so now I'm joined by Vicky Akins, the IRC's country director for Afghanistan. And Vicky's joining me all the way from Kabul. Vicky, thanks so much for spending some time on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. So Vicky, in our first segment on this episode, we were talking to your colleague, George Reddings, about the IRC's emergency watch list of 20 critical countries for focusing on this year in terms of humanitarian crises. And Afghanistan is obviously one of the countries that is listed. Could you maybe give us a sense of the specifics of Afghanistan's humanitarian situation? Why is there such an emergency and what's the scale of it? Sure. Prior to the change of government on August 15th, Afghanistan was already being devastated by a humanitarian crisis that encompassed the effects of the conflict, with nearly 700,000 people being displaced internally. With climate change, Afghanistan is currently going through one of the worst droughts in years. And then with COVID, COVID has had a devastating impact on Afghanistan's economy. And then August 15th happened and the, the Taliban gained power in Afghanistan and became the de facto government. On that day, all of the development funding stopped. All of the funding from the World Bank stopped. Now, to put this into context, aid had consisted of 40% of GDP and provided international governments provided support for 70 to 
of all of the basic services in Afghanistan. So that meant in the initial months when all of the payments stopped, that meant that none of the doctors and nurses were getting paid, teachers weren't getting paid. If you would go into a clinic, you would see empty shelves. You know, there were no medicines uh, if the clinics were even opened. Already, Afghanistan was going through a food security crisis where we had predicted uh, more than half of the population would be in crisis or emergency levels. So the humanitarian response plan for Afghanistan was just launched. There are 24.4 million people out of a population of 38 million who are in humanitarian need. We've got 9 million people on the verge of famine, up to 1 million children, if something isn't done soon, could fall into severe acute malnutrition and potentially even die from that. Then you've got an economy that almost has no hope. So the banks are essentially closed. There's no cash in the country, which means that businesses can't run, which means that in one WFP study, on average, an Afghan laborer was getting one day of work a week. And usually the wages are so low that one day is what they need to feed the family for that day. So with the sanctions, with the freezing of $9 billion in the Afghan government's assets, it has just gone from from bad to worse. I've been the country director for IRC for four and a half years, and I've never seen a situation so bad. You go into a clinic, and they're filled with mothers and malnourished children. I had never really seen malnourished children in Afghanistan. It wasn't a country that you would see that, that level of hunger. We're seeing families that are so devastated that they're basically selling their very, very young daughters into child marriage or you know, sending their children off to work instead of school. Schools had basically been closed for almost two years because of COVID. And unless we can come up with a solution to pay teachers, there's a chance that many children will still be out of school when they reopen in March. So that's the situation we are currently in. The UN launched the largest humanitarian appeal ever for a single country just this past week. And humanitarian aid is really only a Band-Aid. What we need is a solution to the sanctions, a solution to the liquidity crisis, so the economy can get back on track and Afghans can feed themselves. Yeah, thank you for setting all of that out, Vicky. It's obviously a really serious situation. One aspect of the uh, IRC's watchlist report that I thought was kind of striking as well was that there was particular mention of the effects of these amalgamating crises on women and girls specifically. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a sense of how the impact of the situation is gendered in that way. So IRC Afghanistan, 40% of our staff are Afghan women. And in mid-August, we were concerned about whether or not we would be able to restart operations with all of our staff. And we have negotiated with the authorities to allow us to do that. Because if you don't have female humanitarian staff, then you cannot reach women in a meaningful way. 
you need to be able to ensure that women in households are actually able to access the aid that is being delivered. For girls to get an education, we need female teachers. For women to feel comfortable going to clinics or for their families to allow them to go to clinics, we need female healthcare workers. And in August, we lost a lot of the leading women in Afghanistan who evacuated because they had fears for their own life. And so, again, that's why we need to go beyond humanitarian aid and ensure that the, the development focus, the, the funding that's going to provide secondary and tertiary education for women, for example, gets back online. Because if it doesn't, it won't be the Taliban that's preventing women and girls from being educated. It will be the international community. Again, when people are out of work, when men are out of work in particular and aren't able to provide for their families, we see huge increases in gender-based violence. We saw this during COVID, and from anecdotal stories, at least now, we're seeing it even more. And many of the protection centers that women could access have closed down. We need to figure out how to get those reopened. We need to negotiate with the government and make them understand the necessity for those services uh, so women, once again, have a place to go for safety if they need it. As I mentioned before, we're seeing very high numbers of young girls getting married because that is the only way that their families see to feed the rest of the family. And women made up a great percent of the civil service, and none of the civil servants, or I shouldn't say none, but very few of the civil servants are getting paid. So we need to ensure that they get paid, but then there will also be a question of how many will be allowed to come back to work as well. So this crisis really has had a huge impact on women, and it's very important that the international community stays engaged in Afghanistan to ensure that the, the gains of the past 20 years uh, are not lost. Obviously, you've spoken a lot there about access, humanitarian access, which is such a big part of this conversation. But I wondered also, could you give us a sense maybe of the logistical challenges of delivering aid? Obviously, Afghanistan is such a complex, diverse country geographically in terms of climate, in terms of landscape. How difficult then is it to coordinate an aid effort that goes beyond Kabul and reaches out into some of the regions as well? So post-August... The one thing that has actually improved is access to areas because levels of conflict have decreased. So we are now able to access rural areas in a meaningful way that we hadn't been able to, to access before for full-scale programming. So we, uh, the IRC has always worked in Taliban-held areas through our access negotiating teams. But what we could do there because of the levels of conflict and the risk to staff was quite low. However, almost the entire country has now opened up. You know, we're able to travel by road to places that we hadn't been able to go before. We are now able to access every district in every province that we operate in. But 
what that has shown is the scale of the need and the scale of neglect that had happened in those particular areas. For example, the healthcare system didn't always extend to those rural areas, which we are we're basically calling white areas, areas that had no services for the past many years. In terms of the complexity of our own operations and the challenges, of course, the banking system collapsing was a huge challenge. So it took us a month and a half to figure out just how to get cash in to pay our own staff and to carry out our operations. There's also a, a challenge of how do you identify local suppliers and how many there still are here because suppliers that don't have bank accounts outside of the country find it even more challenging to operate. There's getting goods into the country. Of course, the airport, while it is in the evacuation, it was pretty much destroyed and they had to fix it just to allow UN planes and a few other planes to operate. So the only commercial airlines going in and out of Afghanistan right now are the Afghan airlines. So that makes it a challenge as well, getting stuff in and getting staff in and out as well. But as difficult as it has been for international organizations and international NGOs to figure out how to restart their programs, imagine what it's like for local CSOs or for local NGOs that don't have international bank accounts. Many of them were partners in some of the big development programming. So they were, in essence, contracted to the government, but the money was coming through the World Bank. And they still haven't been paid for services delivered under the previous government because the World Bank is saying, you know, the contract was with the government and they haven't figured out a way to pay them. And this has had a devastating effect on some of the very competent national capacity within the country. And so we need to also ensure that any solution that we come up with to enable humanitarian and development operations thinks about what their needs are. That last example you brought up about the World Bank fulfilling its contracts or not to local organisations reminds me I wanted to come back to something you spoke about earlier, which was obviously the sanctions piece of this equation, which uh, you spoke about at the very beginning of this conversation. In your interactions, in your negotiations with donor states and international organisations, do you get a sense that the message is coming across that the extent of the impact of these sanctions on local people. What more do you think needs to be done to try and get governments and, and organizations to turn this around? First, I want to say I do appreciate some of the efforts made to carve out humanitarian exemptions. For example, the three OFAC licenses that the U.S. government issued and the recent U.N. Security Council resolution. That will help the large-scale humanitarian agencies do the work that they need to do, and it will provide some comfort to things like that go a bit beyond humanitarian to education, to livelihoods. However, the sanctions is compounded by the assets freeze, so that $9 billion assets freeze. The banks have no money in them. So even if you had money in the bank, an individual, for example, is limited to taking out the equivalent of $400 a week, whereas 
businesses and you know NGOs, for example, we can only access twenty five up to twenty five thousand dollars of our money a month, whereas we need about one and a half million dollars a week. So we have to bring that money in in different ways that, as I mentioned, isn't always possible for local organizations. And it's certainly not possible for an individual. So we're talking about a country where 97% of the population is at or near below the poverty line. So they certainly don't have international bank accounts. There has to be a way to figure out how to support those banks and how to support private businesses so that people can have jobs. You know, if you're in the provinces, many of the banks just have nothing or the banks have closed their branches. So those people have no access to that type of cash. And if a local business has no access to that type of cash, they're not going to hire people and we're just going to go through a downward spiral. So there has to be a way. I'm not an economist, but I have heard many talking about ideas about how you could unfreeze some of these assets, how the, what is it, the 1.5 billion in the ARTF could be released but not through the government. So for example, if UNICEF is allowed to pay teachers directly, not only will that help the schools reopen, but the families of those teachers will have an income, which you know, will help the economy. People have also been talking about currency swaps or issuing letters of comfort. If, if like the United States were to issue letters of comfort to, to banks that would allow private enterprises to also fall under this sanctions relief. There are a number of solutions that are on the table. Um, it's just whether or not the will is there to push those solutions forward. Obviously, this situation, as with uh, many of the countries on the watch list, it feels so intractable. There are so many complex kind of factors that are contributing to this crisis. But just thinking about the year ahead and the priority actions that you would want policymakers outside of Afghanistan to be taking, you know, what are the key things on your to-do list, just as a final message? Sure. The first is fully funding the humanitarian response plan. So we can maintain the life-saving need. But again, as I mentioned, that's just to keep people from dying off, really. We need to go far beyond that. The second immediate thing would be to figure out how to ensure that civil servants are paid. And by civil servants, I am talking about teachers. I am talking about the nurse at the local clinic. There are ways to funnel that money without going directly through the government. And then the third would be to figure out a way that provides sanctions relief to the economy and to get the economy up and running and to follow that with some development funding. And again, a lot of the development funding was channeled through the government and until this government is recognized, until some sort of political solution is put in place, I understand that that would be impossible. However, there are alternatives to that, and that would provide jobs, and it would help lessen the need for humanitarian assistance. I mean, the levels of dis desperation are getting quite high. We had a distribution of hygiene kits just the other day, where when people saw that there were only a few kits left on the truck, there was a mob rushing the truck. 
and a hygiene kit. We're just talking about, you know, a few bars of soap and some menstrual pads. So if they're that desperate to do that, and again, as I said, I've been here four and a half years and I've never had that happen before. We could be looking at a, at a state that's on the verge of complete collapse. So it's in the interests of everyone to ensure that that doesn't happen. Vicki Aiken, thank you very much for joining me on Undercurrents. Thank you, Ben. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to pitch a topic for Undercurrents, then please do so. You can just reach me on bhorton at chathamhouse.org. And especially if you've got any ideas for what will actually be our 100th regular episode coming up in just a couple of weeks, all ears. looking forward to <laughs> hearing any suggestions there. We'll try and make it fun. While you're waiting for another podcast to drop, I could heartily recommend my fellow podcasters at Chatham House, the team behind the Climate Briefing from the Environment and Society Programme and the team behind Africa Aware from the Africa Programme, which incidentally is celebrating its 20th year of existence in 2022. If you'd like to keep up more generally with Chatham House's work, the best way to do that is to check out our website, www.chathamhouse.org or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks very much for joining me.